get moving. All right. Uh, let me pray for us before we begin. Father, thank you for the time that we have this morning. Pray that your spirit would be upon us to learn and to grow into what it means to be your people, what it means to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, all right, so uh, week one, we covered kind of Anglican history, what it means to be an Anglican tr uh, Christian, somebody, uh, a Christian in this tradition. Week two, um, Spencer talked a little bit about um, sacraments and worship. Week three, that's this week, uh, we're going to talk more about worship, and we're going to actually talk in concrete detail about the liturgy that we have and, um, you know, kind of bits and uh, pieces of that and why we do the things that we do, et cetera, et cetera. But there's a lot that we could talk about. So I first want to just gather from y'all what you're interested in. So as you think about our liturgy on Sunday morning, as you think about the way that we worship together, what are the questions uh, that you uh, have about that? Or what are the, um, yeah, I don't know, the things that you'd like to talk about today? I just want to get those on the board and get our brains and mouths working uh, this early on a Sunday morning. Um, first thing. So does anybody have anything? Yeah, Tim. Yeah, good. Um, so kind of the, the email from this week about returning to sipping from the chalice, that practice. Yeah. Um, great. I will put that up here. Um, and then I think the one cup is also kind of an important symbolism thing. Yeah, good. What else? Anything else that you in particular want to talk about or reflect on today? Yeah, Dennis. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Let's put that up here. Lectionary. Scripture texts that we read on Sunday. Where do those come from? How do we decide? Yeah. My version of the Okay. Talked a little bit about that in week one, but not, uh, you know, not exclusively about the, the BCP. It was a bit more about overall looking history. So that's fine. Anything else? Kind of like the. The the prayers that we pray at the table is that what you mean, or the whole thing? The whole thing, yeah, great. We'll we'll walk through all of that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And if you have particular questions as we walk through, uh, feel free to ask because there's again a lot we could say, and I can't cover everything in an hour. So if you're interested in something, let me know. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering about why you go over yeah. Station is probably a it's not a very liturgical word, but <laughs> we call it. Um, yeah, anything else you're interested in? Tim? Yes. The bowl of water. 
That's for uh, really tall dogs. <laughs> they get thirsty. Or welcome dogs into the service. Just supernatural thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, put the back in the water. Yeah, John. Point to get bowing. When you bow, can you like yeah. apply proper angles? <laughs> Yes. Yeah, you got to get it right. Over again, it proves your demon. Yes. Um, all right. Anything else we want to chat about? We're just collecting. Like, what are you interested in talking about today? When we, when we talk about the liturgy uh, that we as we walk through. So, all right. That's fine. I will try to make sure we hit these points. Um, but again, if something comes up as we walk through, uh, do let me know. Um, the the two things, there's one handout that's like a full page that has kind of a definition of worship on it. The other handout is a uh, booklet um, that walks through our liturgy. We're going to both, we're going to walk through both of those things today. All right. So um, worship, as Spencer said last week, worship is a big deal at the table. Um, but I do think, Spencer touched on this, but I just want to highlight it and emphasize it again this week, that worship is, for, for those of us who come out of an evangelical background, by and large, worship is mainly misunderstood, <laughs> I think, um, because um, for many churches, worship is kind of, it functions a little bit like a Sunday morning show that we try to invite people to so they can make a decision for Jesus and go to heaven when they die, right? And so the primary function of the worship service has ended up being evangelistic. That makes sense? I mean, I think that's a pretty thin view of evangelism, but um, but that's the function of it is we're trying to get new people to to you know to pray the prayer and come into the kingdom, right? And so the the primary the primary function of that worship service then becomes evangelistic. Now in the charismatic church that I grew up in, um, that was a it was a little bit different because worship was this um, encounter with God, and that we do share that um, a sacramental tradition does share that with a charismatic uh, tradition. But I think at least in the one that I grew up in, it tended to be a little bit um, individualistic. You were having a very private encounter with God um, through the stuff that was happening um, rather than a communal uh, encounter with God. So, um, you know, when I planted my first church, for example, the key that a lot of people said to planting a church is providing a smooth, comfortable, inspiring event that people want to come back to, like a concert. Right. So people want to come back to this event, with, you know, make sure the coffee is good. The bathrooms are clean. And again, nothing wrong with good coffee and clean bathrooms, you know, better than bad coffee and dirty bathrooms. But the primary function of worship has ended up being that. And I think for for me and for a lot of other people that then we, we reacted against that. And we have this allergy to thinking about worship in that way for a variety of reasons. And so there was a time when I kind of played around with like house churches. That's where it's at. We're just going to gather like the New Testament, you know, church, which it, that's not actually how they gathered. They gathered very much more like what we do, you know, on Sundays. But, um, you know, the house churches where we just kind of gather and we have a conversation and we share a meal and we sort of do normal life together. Well, that's fine. Those are good things as well. Um, but uh, I think it took me coming back into, coming into a sacramental tradition to understand I think a bit more about the importance and the significance of the body of Christ gathering together on Sunday morning 
You can do it other times, but there's some significance to Sunday morning traditionally to worship. Um, and so, um, so, you know, I have friends who've left the big church environment to start house churches, you know, because of this allergy to Sunday morning show. And so sometimes we can think about, at least I, I know I've talked with a lot of people who come into our Sunday morning worship service with a lot of that baggage, right? Sort of like, oh, this is another version of the Sunday morning show. But it's actually significantly different theologically what we're doing on Sundays. So um, that the first sheet then is my attempt to kind of define what worship is um, through several through several elements. So, um, sorry, one more thing before that. Um, Simon Chan, who's a liturgical theologian, says this, the church's defining characteristic, so like what makes the church the church, the church's defining characteristic is its worshipful response to the call of God to be God's people. Worshiping God is the hallmark of the people of God. So that is the defining characteristic. Um, and so everything else we do, mission, good works, you know, life together, you know, eating together around tables, all of that, it flows from worship and back into worship. Like all of it flows into and out of worship. So worship is the specific practice. This liturgy is the specific practice that trains us to do our whole life as an act of worship. So Romans 12, right, says that you offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is your spiritual act of worship. Right, offering your body. And so sometimes people can say, well, yeah, we don't need worship services. Our whole life is worship. Yes, but we need training in how to live our whole lives as worship. And so that's what Sunday morning is. That's what liturgy is. Same, same way with prayer. Pray at all times. Great. Does that mean I never schedule time to pray? No, I, ne I need to schedule time to pray so I can learn to pray at all times. Does that make sense? It's like a portal that helps us understand what it actually means to live our whole lives as worship is to participate in a liturgy. So worship then, this is the definition that uh, I have here on the sheet. Worship is a communal encounter with the presence of God in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, whereby we are formed as God's people and sent out as the body of Christ. So there's five key elements there um, that I want to talk about real briefly. First is communal. This is something that we do together as a community. This is an extremely important part of the Book of Common Prayer. Part of the origin of the Book of Common Prayer is worship in the vernacular of the people. So um, worship used to be in Latin in, the, in England. Um, and people kind of experienced it as this mysterious thing. They didn't understand what the priest was saying or doing. He was way back there making gestures and Everybody was praying kind of privately by themselves. They came into the cathedral. They came into the churches to pray privately. But Cranmer and other um, English reformers wanted the church to worship together. And so part of that was let's say the same words together in the language that we use in our everyday lives, English. So the Book of Common Prayer is a book of prayer. Let's pray. But it's common prayer, communal, right? So we're going to pray together. So worship is an act, is something we do together. It's not just um, a service that an organization provides for individuals who might like to be spiritual that morning. It's something that we do together, even though, yes, individuals can come in. Visitors are allowed to come, right, and worship with us. But we're doing that together. We're inviting them to come and worship with us. We're doing something together. So it's a communal act. It is an encounter. That's the second important thing. Um, we come into, there's 
you know, clunky way to say this is spiritual contact with God in worship. We come into contact with God's presence. It's an encounter with the person of God together in a unique way. And the reason is, as Spencer said last week, because we celebrate the Eucharist and sometimes baptism, we celebrate the sacraments on Sunday and God has promised to meet us in the sacraments. God has promised that he will be with us in the sacraments. And so coming together on Sundays is an encounter with the presence of God. And the, a key part about the sacraments is that they are uh, physical, right? Visible, physical. So baptism involves water. Communion involves bread and wine. And you're not participating in the sacrament unless you've consumed the bread and wine. So there's this physical element to it that God actually encounters us and we encounter God in creation. Okay, so communal encounter. Third thing is that, lost my place in my notes. There we go, formed. So this communal encounter that we have with God does something to us. So part of the reason we come to church on Sunday is not just when we feel the need for a little spiritual boost in our lives, but we trust that this walking through this liturgy with active participation, with understanding, actually forms us. It forms us individually and it forms us together as a community that we actually become God's people in a, in a unique way. Yes, we are God's people, but as we participate, especially in the sacrament of communion, we become God's people. We become the body of Christ. We'll talk more about that as we walk through the liturgy. Yeah, Michael? It's very similar to like the pre-Orthodox yes. idea of living a sacramental Yes, yeah, precisely. So living a sacramental life, uh, yeah, it's an Orthodox idea. And the sacraments then, the prop, capital S, if you will, yeah. sacraments, are like portals that allow us into living a whole life as a sacrament, right? Yeah. Encountering God. So now I can encounter God in my neighbor and I can encounter God in you as we have dinner together because I've learned how to recognize God's presence in creation, in, in, in the liturgy, you know, in the sacraments. So we are formed together. This does something to us. It's not just an expression of our love for God. It's like we encounter God's presence, we are shaped and we are formed. Um, so that is the third thing. The fourth thing is that we are then sent out. So at the end of the liturgy, we pray that post-communion prayer together, and there's a sending and a blessing. We are sent out from that place to be the body of Christ. Um, this is sort of the everything else of our lives that's done as an act of worship that flows from God sending us out to become what we receive, as we say in our Eucharistic liturgy, right? So you've received the body of Christ in the bread and the wine. Now become the body of Christ. You are the body of Christ. Now be the body of Christ out in the world. And then that's the final element as well, then um, to be the body of Christ. And so there's a movement in the, in the Eucharistic liturgy that you'll notice. This is one of my favorite things about it. Um, there's a movement from speaking of the historical body of Christ crucified on the cross, right? So that's the past, to the sacramental body of Christ in the bread and in the wine, the gifts brought forth from the people that we are giving to God, offering to God, and God then sends God's Holy Spirit on those elements and makes them into something more than bread and something more than wine, the body and blood of Christ. And then we are sent out as the body of Christ. So you see how the body of Christ kind of moves through those, I don't know, modes or phases as we move through the historic, we, we talk about Jesus crucified on the cross, we talk about the bread and the wine, and then we are sanctified ourselves to be the body. Isn't that cool? Yeah. I, don't know, I think that's really cool. Um, so that's the that's the um, uh, that's the element. So um, that's 
yours to keep. Um, <laughs> um, I just wanted to walk through that to kind of give us uh, an overall um, vision of what we're doing when we come together. And now we can move on to kind of the concrete technical aspects of it. Does that sound good? All right, any questions though about kind of what we're doing as we worship? All right. Well, let's talk about the liturgy then um, and why our worship is structured the way it is. The overall structure of our liturgy is uh, word and sacrament. So that's the that's the big picture. It's word and sacrament. So there is a section of the liturgy where we're, it's focused on hearing God's word through scripture. And then we shift. This happens around the, the offertory or so. The offertory then shifts us into the Holy Eucharist, where we are then going to respond to the word. So that's when we participate in the sacrament. There's lots of different ways to talk about this. There's You may have heard of revelation and response, right? Revelation is God speaking. And then our response is we come to the table to receive. Yeah. And we pray. But there's a lot of ways that we respond. But that's the overall shape of the liturgy. Another way to say it is that there's preparation where we hear the word and fulfillment when we receive the word in the, in the bread and the sacrament. There's reflection where we hear God's word and we reflect on it in our hearts and then participation when we come to the table. Okay, so that's the overall shape. It's two, two things. And then our liturgy, I'll just write this up here so you can have a picture of it. Um, it's, uh, it's word. And then this is pretty much every, every liturgy um, in the sacramental tradition. This is historic liturgy. It's not unique to Anglicanism is what I mean. So word and sacrament, and then I didn't leave myself enough room, but there's bookends to this then around the outside where there's a kind of a time of gathering. Before we hear the word, like we sing, there's a processional, right? There's a lot of things that happen that kind of prepare us to hear the word. We hear the word and then the sacrament, and then there's this sending out. Apologies for not leaving myself enough room there. <laughs> I just wanted to get out of a visual for it. Um, so those are basically like two main pillars with bookends is the shape of our liturgy. Okay. All right. So let's start walking through it. Um, if you have your, um, feel free to take some notes. I tried to leave enough space there. Also on the side, that's a great space for notes. It also tells you where in the Book of Common Prayer uh, this part of the liturgy is. Okay. Yeah ever nerd out and look up kind of where we, where we get this stuff. So we use Rite 2, it's called Rite 2. It starts on page 355 in the Book of Common Prayer. So first of all, we gather as the body. Um, and the, the holy water at the entrance of, this is your question, Tim, the holy, that bowl of water is holy water, which just means that it has been blessed. It's been set aside for a special use. Um, same as the bread and the wine. Uh, same as any wine, that, or, sorry, any uh, water that we use in baptism. We don't use wine in baptism, Thank, thankfully for everybody's shirts. Um, but um, that is holy water. So a priest has blessed that water to be a sign of the cleansing that we've received in baptism. And so one of the things, a liturgical action that a lot of people do that you are invited to do yourself is that um, it reminds you of your baptism as you come into the what's called the nave. The, the worship space, the place where we are going to worship. We come out of our normal everyday lives into this special time and place. Um, it's oftentimes called like, we're actually entering into heaven. Eastern Orthodox talk about this. We enter into heaven's time, heaven's space. And as a sign of kind of making that 
transition of, of crossing the threshold. A lot of people will dip their fingers in, into the holy water and make the sign of the cross to remind themselves of their baptism, to remind themselves of the cleansing of God's grace in their lives and to walk into this space, sort of, you know, setting yourself apart to say, okay, this is a special time and a special place for me to worship, to focus, to encounter God. Okay? That's essentially what that means. Any questions about that? We're going to be doing baptisms on November 5th when we receive new members, uh, which remind me to talk about that as well today. Um, if you're interested in becoming a member, I have a couple of bits of information for you. Um, but when we do baptisms, we use that font. Uh, we kind of place it um, a little bit further from the door, um, and we use that font to baptize. And so we'll do that. The Paschal candle, that big, tall candle on the left side as you look at the altar, we, we move that to the uh, baptismal font. And that, that is lit, by the way, um, during Eastertide. So all the Sundays of Easter, from Easter to Pentecost, the Paschal candle is lit. It's also lit for baptisms, and it's lit for funerals, um, and sometimes for like high holy days, um, with feasts of the incarnation. So... Um, and then sometimes our altar guild uh, just gets excited or they forget the official rules and they light it anyway. And <laughs> I think that's fine too. So anyway, um, so um, yeah, that's the holy water at the entrance there. And that's the significance of it. So as you come in, then there's a, there's a call, right? To encounter, Joel rings that little bell, which calls us to attention and calls us into silence. And that is technically before the liturgy begins. All of this stuff is happening and this is just us like getting ready to pray together. So the holy water, the bell, the silence, let's prepare. This is, this is not normal life. This is something special. Let's get ready for it. Okay. So that's that call. And then during that first song, we stand and we sing that first song. During that first song, there's a procession. Now, a procession isn't in the Book of Common Prayer uh, technically, but it is an option. And a lot of Episcopal churches will do it. The procession represents the people. That's us. Um, coming into um, the sacred space and time of worship. We're entering the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. So that cross represents Jesus kind of going into the most holy place and us entering in after. This is Hebrews 10, 19, right? That Jesus by his blood has given us access to the most holy place, the place of encounter with God. And so some will bow as the cross passes by. This is simply a gesture of honor, uh, a gesture of worship to the presence of Christ. Now, again, it's not a magical totem, right? The presence of Christ isn't automatically inside the atoms and the molecules of that cross, but we are using that cross in a sacramental and a symbolic way. And part of the way that we participate in the, in the symbolism of that worship is by bowing, you know, in the, in the presence of Jesus as we go. But you don't have to bow. Nobody ever has to bow or cross themselves or do anything like that. If that's a trigger for you or if it's difficult for you it's not better or more holy to do any of that stuff okay so that's important to say as well um we want to be pastorally sensitive these things these gestures are meant to be helpful to us in order to like bring us into god's presence so if that doesn't do that for you don't do it for now right <laughs> that's fine that's fine um uh, anyway, there's a lot more I could say about that. Um, so that's the, the procession happens, and the, that involves the gospel book, which is right here. And this is a essentially a, a special book. We'll talk a little bit more about this when we get to the reading of the gospel. You'll notice that the gospel reading is a different kind of thing that happens, right? There's a procession. We read it out of a special book. 
but we process the, the processional cross and the gospel book and people who are involved in worship that Sunday. So the preacher, the celebrant, person celebrating communion, um, and the deacon, the person. We've got three priests at the table, but one of us every Sunday acts as the deacon. Because um, once once a deacon, always a deacon, um, even if you get ordained as a priest um, later. So that's the processional. Um, then there's an opening acclamation. This is when we get into the first part of the liturgy in the BCP. The opening acclamation is right on that first page. Um, and this is just acclaiming God. And there's a collect for purity um, that you'll notice we pray most Sundays. This is based on Psalm 5. It's just a, a request that God would purify our hearts and prepare us for worship. And then we move into another song. Um, in the BCP, it says that uh, then is said the Gloria or another song of praise. Most of the time we sing another song of praise, but uh, sometimes we'll sing the Gloria there, which is an ancient hymn giving glory to God um, in, the, in, the, in Jesus Christ. Um, it's a lovely hymn. And we have some great settings for it. And so you'll hear that from time to time. Um, during Lent, we don't sing the Gloria. Uh, Lent is a penitential season. And so we'll sing, um, usually the song there then is a have mercy song. So the BCP says that you can pray um, the uh, Kyrie Leison, which is Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy, or the, what's called the Trisagion, the thrice holy, which is, uh, I don't know if I know it off the top of my head, holy God, holy immortal, um, holy immortal one. Anyway, it's uh, have mercy on us. It's basically like an acclamation of God, but a request for mercy during the season of Lent rather than this sort of joyful, exuberant song of praise. Um, we also sometimes confess our sins right at the beginning of the service during Lent. That's what's called a penitential rite. And we move that from where it normally is right before communion. All right. I know it's a lot of technical stuff, but I'm hoping that we can kind of get a picture of what we're doing here every Sunday. So opening acclamation, opening song of praise. Then there's the collect of the day. Um, and in your liturgy walkthrough booklet here, I've put today's collect, um, which is proper 24. That's just as a system of numbering the Sundays after Pentecost. Um, and so it just refers to the Sunday, this this Sunday, which is closest to, I can't remember what it said. I think it says in the BCP, um, for the Sunday closest to October 19th. And so October 22nd is today's Sunday. So this is our collect for today. And the collect is, um, is our prayer together as a church. The collect is prayed by the celebrant or the uh, the deacon, the person who's leading worship at that point. The, the, it's prayed by that person. Um, it, there's a specific format to collects. It's actually a lovely thing to learn how to do because you can, for your own spiritual practice, you can write collects. And actually, we used to do this um, as a church where we would get together and we would write collects that were specific for the scriptures that we were reading that Sunday. And we'd pray those after the prayers of the people. We may get back into that habit more eventually. And collect, um, you know, it involves an address of God. There's a declaration of some attribute or action of God. There's a specific request of God in the collect. And then there is oftentimes a reason for the request or the hoped for result of the answered prayer. And then there's some kind of Christological or Trinitarian flourish at the end, uh, if you will. And so you'll notice all of those elements in today's collect. Um, Almighty and everlasting God, that's the address of God. Now, here's the attribute or action of God. In Christ, you have revealed your glory among the nations, right? Now, here's the request. Preserve the works of your mercy. And here's the hoped-for result of that answered prayer, that your church throughout the world may persevere with steadfast faith in the confession of your name. Does that make sense? And then there's the flourish there at the end. 
so which is Trinitarian, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you, the God that we have addressed, and the Holy Spirit, one God, everlasting. Okay? That prayer can be prayed all week. So morning and evening prayer, you pray the collect of the day. And so it's kind of, it's think of it as the prayer of the week. And you can, the reason we put it in the booklet is you can take this home. I mean, it's in the BCP, but you'd have to look things up, but feel free to take this home, put it up on the fridge, pray it. It's our prayer of the week, okay? All right, so we pray that prayer, and then we go into listening for the word. So this is where the, that all of that's kind of gathering, preparing us, and then we dismiss our kids, and then we listen for the word. Um, and here scripture is read. Um, and scripture is read. We believe that scripture is an encounter with God. So um, it's in, in one sense, it is sacramental. It's less information that we're receiving and processing intellectually and more of a spiritual encounter with God through the reading of scripture. Um, there's a lot I could say about that, but suffice it. Maybe that's enough for now. Um, so we're receiving words of life here, not just uh, information about God. Normally, to your question, Dennis, normally we use the revised common lectionary, um, which is uh, uh, tons of churches um, from different traditions around the world use the revised common lectionary. And it's essentially a set of readings for three years. There's a three year cycle, year A, year B, year C for every Sunday. And so when we're using the revised common lectionary, we are reading with almost every other litur um, liturgical church, like in our city and across the world. Uh, we're reading the same texts um, on those on those Sundays. Um, and they're basically just give you a like a, you know, obviously you can't read through the whole Bible, but they give you a, a, a sense of the most important texts that, you know, the lectionary writers have determined. Um, and again, it gives you a, a sense of being reading with the rest of the church. Now, a lot of you will know that we're not using the Rise Common Lectionary this year, this liturgical year, which started in Advent last year. We're using uh, something called the Women's Lectionary, which is um, something that uh, the Reverend Dr. Wilda Gaffney, who's an Episcopal priest, uh, developed um, to highlight the stories of women in the scriptures and kind of um, help us hear God with a more feminine register, perhaps, um, than we're used to. So there's a lot of elements of that um, that we could talk about. We're actually going to have a congregational meeting on November 12th to actually debrief our experience with uh, the Women's Lectionary, if you'd like to come and just process some of that stuff. I know it's new for a lot of us to refer to God with female pronouns. We do that in the psalm readings, typically. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of interesting things about that translation. So we're doing that kind of as a, um, you know, uh, as a liturgical experiment this year. Yeah, Lauren? Quick question. Uh, if we're not going to be here on the 12th, will there be a way we can still... That is a great question. Um, let me make sure that there is. I think that would be a, that'd be a great idea. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, I would. Uh, I'll. I'll make sure that we can do that. Yeah. Dennis. What translation of scripture Good question. Um, uh, the Women's Lectionary has translations, so um, Dr. Gaffney has translated the texts um, uh, in a unique way, um, and so we're using her translation right now for all the texts. Um, normally, we read from the New Revised Standard Version, NRSV, um, updated edition, I think, is probably what we'd end up with. I think there's an updated edition. So normally, we read from the, the, the NRSV. 
So, um, yeah, what's that? Oh, this is that explaining Okay. Yeah, yeah. Searching through each one. This, yeah, this is not anywhere. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 So that's we're using her translations right now because that's part of the women's lectionary. Is she she tends to highlight different things about the text that sometimes get obscured. Yeah. Um, one example of this that I think is really interesting in this in the Psalms, especially the what's called the tetragrammaton. I think I pronounced that right. The the four letters that indicate the name of God in Hebrew. Um, like uh, like Jews will typically piously not pronounce it. And so when you see the Lord in all capital letters in your translations, that is a translation of, that's a way of sort of honoring, not saying the name directly, not trying to pronounce it. Like, And it's usually pronounced Yahweh or Jehovah. Um, and so the Lord is typically the stand-in. And when it's all caps, um, that means that it's translating Yahweh. And what uh, Dr. Gaffney has done, and sometimes it's translated in other ways, there's usually evocative, sort of like taken from the context, what is the attribute of God that we want to emphasize here? And Dr. Gaffney does that quite a bit. And so, you know, she'll say, womb of life. And so when you see that in the translations, when it's all capitalized, you know it's translating Yahweh, which there's essentially like a long history of uh, interpreters and translators doing this where they don't translate it directly. They don't put the, 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 the letters in the text. They replace it with a name of God that indicates sort of what God is doing in this passage. So anyway, did you have a question? Sorry, I saw your hand earlier. All right, I'm sure it'll come back. I'm sure of it. Oh, yeah. Um, are you essentially, like, is it a free of a women's lectionary? Is it a free of lectionary? It is, yeah. The women's lectionary is, there's two different versions of it. One is a, kind of a, a one-year cycle. If you just want to do a, an experiment. Um, we chose to do year one, year A. Um, but I don't think we're going to do year B and C. I think we're just going to do a one, kind of a one-year experiment. And we'll debrief that. We'll go back to, um, she's writing it actually actively. She's trying to release it by the time people get to year B, which is coming up in Advent, and year C, I hope she'll have written by, <laughs> you know, by the time that year C comes. So it's a huge project translating and curating scriptures like that. So yeah, yeah. All right, let us move on then. So um, we're reading scripture here. Um, <clears throat> normally you use the Revised Common Lectionary. Um, and then you'll notice, uh, you know, a lay person typically reads the Old Testament text, um, the psalm reading, which oftentimes for us, we have Joel, um, Joel writes a kind of a, a, a paraphrase of the psalm set to music. Um, that normally doesn't happen in a lot of churches. It's an, <laughs> I want us to know how, what an incredible gift it is um, that Joel feels inclined uh, to do this and has the gifting uh, to be able to write uh, such wonderful music for us uh, on Sundays. Um, and then the, the gospel reading, though, is different, right? So it's read out of this book. There's a procession where we go up. The deacon typically reads the gospel. And typically this is done by an ordained person because it is considered a sacramental act. It is the direct words and actions of Jesus. And so we do treat it a little bit differently um, in, in the liturgical tradition. We treat it. We treat the direct words and, and actions of Jesus a little bit differently. Um, and so a deacon, whoever's acting as the deacon that Sunday, 
um, we'll read from uh, the gospel. The gospel is processed into the midst of the people as well. That's kind of what that means, why we, we move into the midst of the people. And it indicates just that God's word is, you know, present among us. Jesus is with us, you know, in the reading of, of these texts, of his actions and his words. And, um, you know, that's that little gesture where you put the sign of the cross on your forehead, your lips. Spencer talked about that last week, but essentially just think about that as like the word of God be in my mind and on my lips and in my heart. Um, it's just a prayer that God's words would enter in. I mean, you'd normally do it with your thumb for some reason, um, like this, where as normally the sign of the cross is kind of three fingers together, forehead, kind of belly button, shoulder, shoulder. So the gospel is read. Um, we stand to listen um, with that prayer of the of the cross on forehead, lips, and heart. Um, and then in our liturgy, we read the Nicene Creed at that point. That is going to change um, eventually because in the BCP, the Nicene Creed is read after the sermon. And that is important to Bishop Jennifer. And we're in her diocese. So we're going to listen to our bishop. Um, and so that, that'll be a slight change for us. But... Um, but right now, and this Sunday, in just a bit, we will read the Nicene Creed together. Essentially, the, the Nicene Creed is, you may know the history of it, but it's essentially an outline of the gospel. Um, there's a, it was created for a lot of different uh, kind of crazy political and spiritual reasons uh, uh, kind of all together. But essentially, we use it today as a way of confessing our faith. And so what, do we, what we believe in God the Father Almighty, we believe in Jesus Christ, we believe in the Holy Spirit and all of that kind of stuff. So it's a way of confessing our faith um, actively and with our mouths. Yeah, Michael? Um, does the Anglican Church uh, or accept any of the other creeds that have them? Yes. Pass any yes. of the other men's creeds out there? Yes. Um, the Anglican Church, if I have this, uh, the Apostles' Creed is read at morning and evening prayer. And so the Apostles' Creed is part of our prayer book as well. Um, the Athanasian Creed is written in small letters in the back of the BCP. Um, and so that is um, in very traditional churches said on Trinity Sunday, I think. Um, but um, some people shy away from that one because it has like curses, anathema for anybody who doesn't confess this. And that seems a little harsh to our ears these days. <laughs> um, but the Athanasian Creed is part of that. Um, and I think, I think from what I can remember, in general, we accept any creed from the first I can't remember if it's five or seven ecumenical councils. So Nicaea was an ecumenical council. It was it's sort of like, hey, everybody that's part of this thing called the Holy Catholic Church, let's get together and figure out what we mean when we say that God is a trinity, right? Um, that kind of a thing. So, yeah. There's the creeds are the ones that came out of the apartheid a few years ago. Oh, yeah. I mean, some of those modern uh, creeds, there's no official... It's not in our prayer book, oh. you know, um, but, you know, they, they might be fine, you know, statements of faith, um, that kind of thing. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so there's the creed. The sermon then is, oh, sorry. Yeah. One more question. Mm-hmm. Yes. And we do that in the Yes. Yes. 
Yes. And that was always the thing that you mentioned. Yeah. 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 So you're talking about something that's called the filioque. Um, and so there's a phrase, you'll notice this in the Nicene Creed, that the um, we believe in the Holy Spirit who proceeds, and we say from the Father. In if you look in the BCP, the, the 1979 BCP, it says who proceeds from the Father and the Son. And so quick overview. The filioque was part of the, the great schism in the church in 1067, I think it was, where the East split from the West. And part of what they were arguing about is, does the Father proceed from the Son? Or sorry, does the Son proceed, does the Spirit proceed from the Father? Or does the Spirit proceed from the Father and the Son? There's a lot of other stuff they were arguing about that I think might have been more the issue rather than a technical you know, issue on the creed. They were fighting about the authority of the Bishop of Rome. You know, can the Bishop of Rome tell the churches in the East what to do? And the churches in the East said, no, you can't. Bishop of Rome said, yes, I can. And that was a big part of it. Um, so they were arguing about the authority of what is now called the Pope. Um, but this was, this was a theological argument that they had. And so it became a marker of being a Western church to say that the spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, a marker of the Eastern church. There's, there has been some movement, some ecumenical movement in the Anglican Church, but also a few other churches um, to try to bridge some gaps, to reconcile with the East um, in some ways. And I think that this is given as kind of an olive branch to say, you know what, there's probably not a lot of scriptural justification for us insisting that the Spirit proceeds from the Son also. And so we're happy to confess this creed the way that you confess it. Um, as a conciliatory gesture. And that is in the, it's not in the BCP, but it is in something called Enriching Our Worship, which is some prayer forms that the Episcopal Church came out with a few years ago that are authorized for use. We, we're actually using one, our Eucharistic liturgy right now is prayer two from Enriching Our Worship. And in that, it says the, the creed uh, just has from the Father. And there's a note there that says that We've authorized the use of this as a conciliatory gesture if you'd like to like to use it. So yeah, it's a great question. Allowed me to nerd out just a little bit. So yeah, Tim. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I think um I think my understanding, I'm I'm a little fuzzy on this, but I do think it evolves a, a bit. I, I think one of the points of contention, though, the East had was the West unilaterally evolved it, right? So the West was like, you know what? I think it should be this. And they were like, hey, we didn't have a council to talk about that. And so even if it is that, we didn't meet and talk about it. So it, it's not that. You can't just decide for everybody what the creed is going to be. So that was kind of, the, I think that's part of the argument, yeah, that the East was making. So, um, okay. In the interest of time, let us move on. The sermon is preached, okay? The sermon is not uh, information about God necessarily. It is not um, a, uh, a pep rally. It's not something that says like, you better shape up, you know, or God's gonna get you. <laughs> the sermon is good news. So you'll notice all of our preachers have a uh, phrase, right? The good news that we proclaim today. That's like a, that's a clue. Listen in, that's probably gonna be repeated three or four times during that sermon. That is the proclamation. It's news. It's a proclamation of the new world that is available to us in God. Okay, so that's what you hear in the sermon. And then there is an invitation to respond to that good news 
but it's never an invitation. It's never a condemnation. It's never a shape up, you know, where God's going to get you. It's it's an invitation to respond to good news. And so that's really important to us that uh, we preach in that way. Um, and that, you know, that comes from Jesus, you know, at the beginning of his ministry, right? It says, now is the time. Here comes God's kingdom. Change your hearts and your lives and trust this good news or repent and believe. Yeah, that's essentially the sermon. Here's the good news. Repent and believe. Um, and then we respond to that good news. Now, and eventually we're going to respond with the creed. But right now, our response goes straight into the prayers of the people. Um, the first prayer that we pray is this prayer of response to the sermon. This isn't in the BCP. This is something that we've kind of considered part of the sermon. Um, and it's, you know, meaningful for our community. And so we're probably going to keep doing it. It's a kind of that fill in the blank prayer, essentially, is how we respond is we we sense what God is saying to us. And we pray that back to God, filling in that blank, whatever it is for us, whatever we're feeling and sensing in our hearts. And then we respond by doing the prayers of the people. So um, this is right now we do this liturgically, kind of back and forth. There's a lot of different ways to do this. But essentially, prayers of the people are us taking our authority as God's people to pray for the church and for the world, believing that our prayers are powerful and effective. Okay, So it's not just for us, but now we're saying we're taking our authority as God's people and we're praying for the blessing and the flourishing of the whole world. It's like a really important part of our responsibility and our authority as God's people. Uh, from there, we move into the confession of sin and the absolution. And so placing this here is kind of 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight 28 says, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And so that's kind of the idea is let's confess our sins uh, together. We don't confess our sins absolutely every Sunday. The BCP says that on occasion it can be skipped and on occasion we skip it. Um, sometimes during Easter, we skip it. Um, just on occasion. So um, that's confession of sin, the absolution. Um, a priest does this, right? Um, Almighty God, have mercy on you. Uh, forgive you all your sins. Keep you in eternal life. Um, and that's another time that people make the sign of the cross. The priest actually makes the sign of the cross sort of on the people when we do that as well. And that's part of the liturgical action there. And then as we've confessed our sins, we pass the peace, right? The peace of the Lord be always with you and also with you. Um, and this is essentially an expression uh, symbolic of our unity in Christ before we come to the table. And this, again, comes from 1 Corinthians, where Paul is talking about the, the, the terrible way <laughs> that the Corinthians are uh, eating the Lord's Supper, where the rich are coming in early and eating all the food because they don't have to work late. And then the poor people come and, the, you know, he's like, you guys, you guys are not treating one another with the honor that you need to treat one another with. And so... Um, and there's also Matthew 5 is in here, right? So if, if, you, if you're presenting your gift at the altar and you know that a brother or sister has something against you, you're responsible to go to them, right? And so I've often felt this. I, I remember um, there was one particular Sunday a few uh, weeks ago where I was feeling uh, stressed out about something that had not, like it wasn't working. Um, it was a technical issue, it wasn't working, that kind of thing. And I, uh, I my, my irritation sort of came out of me um, onto uh, somebody at the church, a team member. And I sort of, um, I didn't realize it until I saw their face, you know, and I was like, oh, shoot, I think I hurt their feelings, you know? And so we had to get right into worship though. But I remember feeling convicted, like during the passing of the peace, where I was like, I need to go to this person and apologize to them before I come to the table. Um, because 
This is the time to do that, right? So it is a liturgical act, passing the peace, but I'll, you know, I'll allow it to say, am I reconciled really with all of these people? Or do I need to do something right now? And go ahead, go and do it. You know, Leave your gift at the altar and go be reconciled. So passing of the peace, and then, um, yeah, we, you know, that that's when all chaos breaks loose in our church, right? Um, it's not a coffee break, but it is a liturgical act. But um, maybe we can pause here for some questions before we finish up in the next 10 minutes or so. Any, any other questions? You guys have been doing great just asking them as we go. It's always a challenge for me to get through the whole liturgy in an hour. Yeah, Dennis? Um, the... Um, within the lectionary, or was it the DCP? Does it explain like the different uh, the the calendar, the year? Yeah. Seasons. And yep. All that? Yep. Yeah. There's a section uh, in the beginning of the BCP that talks about the church calendar. It has all the kind of feast days. Um, it has the overall seasons, and then the lectionary also has that as well. Where there's um, so the lectionary is actually listed. There's two lectionaries back there. One is the Revised Common Lectionary for Sundays, and then there's the Daily Office Lectionary. So we're talking about the Revised Common Lectionary, which is Daily Office Lectionaries for morning and evening prayer. The Revised Common Lectionaries for Sunday worship. And that those are actually listed, like you'll notice today, um, it's not on this one, but today's called the 21st Sunday after Pentecost, I think, um, which we've, we're just counting from Pentecost, you know, and then the first Sunday of Advent will be the beginning of a new liturgical year. Um, and th those are all listed in the BCP, like what those are called, how many Sundays are involved, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So, yeah, Lauren? I'm going to stop you fast, but if you're a person, like you'll see me look at my phone a lot. In addition to your service, in addition to having the printed Book of Common Prayer, there's an app called OMTP, Electronic Common Prayer, put out by Church Publishing. And one of the nice features about that is it provides you direct links to the Revised Common Lectionary readings for the day. Yeah. It also gives, tells you what the different days are, just like you're mentioning. Yes. Yeah. There's another one called Venite um, that is also does the same thing, sort of plugs all the bits in that you need to like usually flip to another section of the book to find. And it just plugs them all into a liturgy that you can actually just read. It's really handy. So that's called Venite. Um, okay. Let's try to finish up if we can here real quick. Okay. So that's the word part of this. Okay. Now we move into the sacrament um, and here's where we put our announcements basically. So announcements can go in a variety of different places, but we, we put them here just to say, we're, we're, um, you know, we're at peace with one another, we're reconciled with one another. And then there's an expansion of that that says like, well, here's some stuff that we're doing together as a, as a community, or here's some stuff that's coming up. And so we invite people into that. We pray those Sunday prayers, which um, that's not in the BCP either, but that's a practice that uh, we enjoy just celebrating people's birthdays, anniversaries, praying for travel. It's just, again, it's like what's happening in our community besides that we're worshiping together. Let's be aware of that and keep one another in our hearts as we do that. So at this point, we've heard, you know, the gospel proclaimed, and now we sort of move into this time of embodying and responding to the gospel in the Lord's Prayer, or the, sorry, the, the, the Holy Communion, um, which involves the Lord's Prayer. Um, and so it begins with the offertory, um, which you'll notice this is the transition where usually the, the, there'll be an offertory sentence of some kind. 
The gifts are brought forward. Joel starts singing a song at this point or whoever's leading music. Um, bread and wine are brought forward. That's what's happening. You guys know that part where bread and wine are brought forward. This, this represents the gifts of the people that are offered to, to God. And we're passing offering plates as well, which is also a sign of our offering of ourselves to God and the first fruits of our labor to God. Um, you'll notice I didn't grab one, but those little wooden tokens, essentially those are symbolic. Almost everybody gives online, which we really appreciate, helps us budget, <laughs> which is great. Um, but, you know, what do we do liturgically then? And so those wooden tokens are, are basically a liturgical act that says, I'm, I'm remembering that I'm doing this. This isn't just online bill pay so that my water doesn't get shut off, you know, which is handy. But this is an act of worship for me to set up an online gift that happens every month or whatever. So, so those, that's the offertory sort of represents we're bringing all that we are to God and to the table um, in that act. Um, and then it's time to make Eucharist. And so uh, we stand, you know, we sing the doxology as a sort of praise to God. And then the priest will stand. We prepare the table. Some wine will be poured into a chalice. Some bread is on the pattern here. And um, the priest stands like this. This is called Oran's position. It's just a, a, a position that uh, indicates that um, the priest is praying on behalf of the people. So it's not just something the priest is doing privately. It's this is all of our prayer. And sometimes we're involved in that. And sometimes we're listening. Uh, we're all participating when the priest is praying like this. This is Oran's. So um, the first part of that is what's called a fun Latin name called the Sursum Corda, uh, which is just that first part. The, the Lord be with you. Um, lift up your hearts. That's Sursum Corda in Latin. Lift up your hearts. We lift them to the Lord. That's this act of offering ourselves to God. Um, let us you know, give our thanks and praise. It is right to give our thanks and praise. And we begin to give our thanks and praise. Um, that first part of the prayer then is uh, an acclamation of how wonderful God is. And it ends in the sanct what's called the sanctus, where we transition into, therefore we praise you and we sing together, holy, holy, holy. You guys know that part? Um, normally the priest will bow at this point. It's just traditional to, um, when, when that phrase is said, holy, 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 it's an indication that we are sort of entering into heaven in a unique way. And so the priest will bow. You're welcome to bow as well, if you'd like. Um, moves into the sanctus, holy, holy, holy. And then there is the prayer of remembrance. Um, in Greek, this is called the anamnesis. It's just a word that means memory or, or remembering. And that is where we recall the acts of God in Christ. So you'll notice the prayer always, always says something like, God, you created us in your love and we fell, uh, but you never stopped loving us and you sent Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died on the cross and was raised for our sins, right? There's some sort of gospel story is told here during the anamnesis. And then it ends with the words of institution. Um, the, uh, on the night that our Lord Jesus Christ was betrayed, he took bread. And you'll notice us sort of take the bread, hold it. Um, there's, you know, broke it. We, we make the sign of the cross on it, that kind of thing. We take the cup, hold it up. You know, um, this is where we are remembering the thing that Christ commanded us to do and uh, beginning to enter into that, into, into that space, okay? It moves from there. Uh, oftentimes the mystery of faith is said here. The prayer that we're using right now doesn't have it. Um, but uh, most prayers have some kind of mystery of faith, which is Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. Um, I miss the fact that we don't have it in this prayer. Um, there's a lot that I like about this prayer, but uh, not that. Um, and then we move into the prayer of consecration. So anamnesis, the prayer of remembrance. We remember what Christ has commanded us to do. And then uh, consecration is, fancy Greek word is epiclesis, where we call upon the Holy Spirit 
to consecrate the bread and the wine to be for us the body and blood of Christ. The priest will do this with his hands to indicate just a sign of blessing, uh, make the sign of the cross as well, just to say this, this bread and this wine are now set apart to be for us the body and blood of Christ in this moment of worship. So they're, they become sort of, again, the molecules aren't like, don't have Jesus inside them. But there is a mystery here that we don't know exactly how to articulate, that we participate in, that this bread and this wine are the body and they are the blood, because Jesus said they were. So we trust it and we receive it as Jesus' body and Jesus' blood. And we treat the wine and the bread um, specially. Um, so we don't just throw the rest in the trash. The rest of the, the bread and the wine needs to be either consumed or reverently disposed of. So we don't throw it down a drain. Uh, we'll pour it out on the ground or we'll consume it. And so, again, this is just a way of treating a special object specially, treating it as special. We don't we don't just do whatever we want with this stuff. Does that make sense? Yeah. So um, that's the prayer of Epiclesis. Um, and it, it, everything is kind of drawn into that final doxology. Um, where the, the bread is held up, and the cup is held up, you know, all this we ask for Jesus Christ our Lord, you know, that kind of thing. And then this is a word that is capitalized in the BCP. It's the only word that is completely capitalized in the BCP. It's the amen at the end of that prayer. And that is like the final punctuation point of the prayer that says that we are together coming into this uh, encounter with God. Um, yeah, and about to receive. So um, we pray the Lord's Prayer. And then there's the breaking of the bread in silence, and Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Hallelujah. Um, and so what's happening here is that um, Jesus Christ, uh, you know, the Bible says that he was sacrificed before the foundation of the world once for all. And so here and now, too, Christ is sacrificed for us. We're not re-sacrificing Jesus, but we are sort of participating in a collapsing of time that happens in the Eucharist. So the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, our participation in that, and the future feast, the final banquet, all of it kind of comes together, and we're participating in all three moments kind of at the, at the same time. You ever seen the movie Inception? Not, sorry, not Inception, Interstellar, right? This has some elements of that, where people are participating in the future and the past, and kind of some, some interesting dynamics are happening there. That's what's happening at the table when we, when we come together. Like there's this collapsing of time that's happening. We're participating in a way in the sacrifice of Christ. And we're also participating in a way in the final banquet, which is why we, you know, we say, behold the Lamb of God, behold him who takes away the sins of the world. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. In some ways, this is the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we participate in that. So it's kind of cool, yeah? We get to do this every Sunday. Um, so that is what's happening. Um, and then we partake, you know? And this is Paul in 1 Corinthians 10. Uh, the bread which we break, is it not a participation, a fellowship in the body of Christ? And so there's this fellowship, there's this intimacy, uh, there's communion. That's why it's called communion um, with Jesus um, as we do that. And we're singing as we do that as well. And then finally, moving to sending, where we pray the post-communion prayer together. That is just the prayer where we thank God for feeding us in the sacrament and ask the spirit to send us out in the power or ask God to send us out in the power of the spirit. We sing a final song. The recessional goes out um, the cross sort of moving out ahead of us. So Jesus presence moves out ahead of us. And then the deacon uh, dismisses us. Oh, well, sorry, there's a blessing there. The priest blesses the people 
And then the deacon says, let us go into the world rejoicing in the power of Christ. There's a few different phrases that we say there. And then the liturgy ends with thanks be to God. We are the body of Christ moving out into the world. All right. Any questions before we go? Yeah, Roxanne. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, this is called the threefold order of a ministry, um, deacon, priest, and bishop. And this goes all the way back a long ways, you know, in church history. Um, we're all three priests. One of us act, will act as the deacon for that Sunday. The traditional role of the deacon, the deacon is a bit more connected to the needs of the world. And so the deacon's job vocationally is to connect the needs, uh, to connect the church to the needs of the world. So they're involved with the poor, you know, that, that kind of a thing. Traditionally, the priest is more involved with the needs of the people of the church. So that's a super big overview. Um, we don't have a like a, an ordained deacon in our midst, somebody who feels called to that as a, a vocation. We have three priests. Um, but once you're a deacon, then you're ordained a priest, and then some people are ordained bishops. Um, and so uh, all, of, all three of us remain deacons as well. And so, you know, all three of us will act as the deacon. And so traditionally, the deacon reads the gospel um, and dismisses the people. Again, connecting, you know, the people to kind of the needs of the world. So that's just traditionally. So one of us, Spencer, are you the deacon today? So you'll see Spencer. And he also then will begin the service. So we've had to, you know, all three of us are usually involved. Um, sometimes just two of us. But yeah, good question. Anything else? Yeah, Dennis. A uh, question from this weekend. A lot of what I heard last week on the recording. Um, how do you in these... Uh, these prayers, and when you read them so many times, you almost memorize them. How does one uh, protect themselves from just uh, emotions? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. 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 Um, I have two thoughts about this. One, I think that we, um, I think that there can be some power in learning something by rote, that it can have formational impact in us, even though maybe our minds are not specifically engaged, right? So if my body is engaged in an act of prayer that my mind isn't directly connected to, I think that can still be a powerful act of prayer. And so I've found it to be really helpful to embrace the discipline of what I just call saying my prayers. You know, um, I, I think I used to feel like I have to feel something or have some profound insight for it to be real prayer. But now a lot of my prayer is just saying my prayers. And sometimes I don't feel a ton. So that's one thing that I would say. The other thing, though, I would say is that um, Augustine talks about this and a lot of the church fathers talk about this, that you do have to maintain some discipline to keep your heart engaged in the prayer. That doesn't mean you have to have a profound thought. It just means that there's a difference between mindlessly re repeating words, right? This, Jesus talked about this, like mindless repetition um, and saying your prayers in a heart-connected way. And so I, I think it's less about striving, um, but it is, it is more about I have to come in with some intentionality to my prayer life to say, you know, like I'm engaging, you know, in this, in this um, here and now. So did you have something to say about that, Spencer? Yeah. 
part of, you know, we're doing that intercessor lunch and learn after worship today. That's just for anybody who's um, who's part of that team that leads us in prayer. Intercessor is the title for the person who leads us in the prayers of the people. Um, and that's something that we encourage them to do as well, because there is a sense in which, oh, the, it's written. I'm just going to read it. But actually to faithfully engage in it. And I think most of our prayer leaders do this. There's there's a sense in which don't just read it. Don't just read the words pray the words, you know, like be in prayer as you're leading the church in prayer. And there is a, there is an important aspect of that for sure. Yes. All right. Anything else? Yeah, Tim. Uh, just kind of on the side of that. It's something like, well, there's an amazing thing that's going to be able to do it. Hmm. It's like, one of my problems uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I, I, there's definitely, I mean, a big part of the Reformation was pushing back on maybe some of those kinds of practices, right? So I think there's some validity to that, um, where there is, there might be a danger of yeah, maybe idolatry is, is the way to say it. Uh, it's difficult because I think that some of the, my personal opinion is that some of the reformers went too far and they created they created a meaningless feast. You know, it's just sort of like, it's a, it's a flannel graph. It's just a way of, you know, it's like, oh, it's a handy reference to remember that Jesus died for you. You know, it's like, no, that, that's not actually what scripture says. Jesus said, it's my body and it's my blood. And so there's a mystery here for us to reverence. So, um, so yeah, I think there are, you know, I think there's some danger there. For the most part, I think that the table is comprised of people who are not coming from that tradition. They're coming from the other direction. And I've found it pastorally uh, and, and personally helpful to elevate the meaning of what's happening. Um, and so I'm not too worried about it. Um, maybe, you know, 100 years from now, maybe we'll have to do some rethinking, you know. Um, but yeah. yeah, what were you going to say? Yeah, I think yeah. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 the name of what they might just be idols and icons. Basically, creating the sacrament as a differentiating, I think the Reformation lost the differentiation between. Iconography and idolatry. That's really good. Yeah. Whereas an icon is a window that looks out. Yes. Idol is a mirror that looks back at itself. That's really good. And therefore, by treating it, they can both be the same thing. Right. But by treating it as an icon, you're looking outward to that which is greater. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good way to articulate it. Do you guys hear that? The difference between icons and idols. Yeah. So, I, and just for the recording, uh, an icon. And, you know, you guys, we have an icon right up at the, you know, it's it's that uh, traditional Byzantine icon, the Christ uh, Pentocrator, like ruler of all is, is what that means in Greek. Um, that is meant not to be an idol. We don't bow down and worship that as Jesus, right? We don't put Jesus in the trunk and take him places, right? Um, but it's meant to be a window to Jesus, right? It's meant to be a way for us to perceive and encounter Jesus. The sacraments are the same thing. The bread and the wine are meant to be a window to encounter the body and blood of Christ. Um, you know, not to be. So I think sucking the wine out of the carpet is a bit excessive, just because you're not going to get it all. You know what I mean? And like, like what about the what about the stuff that's left behind? You know what I mean? Like, you know, how are you stepping on it, or you know that kind of thing? So, um, so yeah, it can be it can be the same kind of thing. And I think that some of the reformers, the mistake they made was assuming that it is necessarily an idol and we have to like smash it, you know, um, to the point where people said like, we're, you know, we're only going to take communion once a year because there's so much danger of idolatry here. Um, when it's like, no, actually the, the shift is not to say we need to do this idolatrous practice less. <laughs> the shift is let's make it into an iconography, you know, and I let's make it into an icon so that we can encounter Christ uh, through the creation rather than treating the creation as an idol. So it's meant to be a window. The idol is a mirror that basically like reflects back to ourselves. That's really good. Thanks. All right. I should let you go. Peace, friends. Good to be with you.